MSW Media. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Monday, November 15th, 2021. Today, Steve Bannon has been indicted for criminal contempt of Congress. Adam Schiff says the January 6th committee will move to refer Mark Meadows to the Department of Justice for criminal contempt of Congress. A new memo surfaces from Jenna Ellis telling Pence's team to throw out electors for six states. An investigation by a congressional subcommittee shows Trump appointees falsified CDC coronavirus reports and the Oath Keepers break their oath to pay their legal fees. I'm Allison Gill. And I'm Dana Goldberg. Ooh, you're back. <laughs> Did you like that? I was like, and guess what? Guess who I am? <laughs> you can always tell by like, I'm Allison Gill. You know, <laughs> and I'm like, and I'm Dana Gold. I'm Dana Goldberg. It's good to be back. Hello, everyone. I missed you. I missed you. I missed you. Instead of just, I'm Allison Gill. Yeah, <laughs> there's like, hey. you got it. There's there's something coming. There's someone here with me. Oh, I missed you, my friend. I'm so glad you're back. I missed you too. It was nice to uh, have some in person work and raise three hundred thousand dollars for seventeen organizations in Texas that are in much need, and that's in addition to all the other money they had already raised from the event. That was just my specific part. So it was a very successful night. And then I, I got to travel to a beautiful place uh, to make people laugh. So I had, I had a good week, but I'm tired. I'm tired, but I'm happy. You're the best fundraiser ever. Thank you. I am thankful that you're out there doing this work. 300,000. Awesome. Well, yeah. well done. Well, thank done, you sir. very much. It was good, good. And while you were gone, Steve Bannon was indicted. Oh, yes. I was very excited to hear that. I saw that when I landed. That happened on Friday, Felony Friday or Felony Fridays are back. And I went over this in pretty, pretty decent detail on yesterday's Mueller She Wrote podcast, but I wanted to talk about it here for a minute. So we'll do that in the discussion because I'm sure everyone's heard the news by now. It had dropped after our show came out on Friday. So Bannon was indicted on two counts, one for not producing documents, one for not showing up, although I would personally never punish him for not showing up anywhere near me. (laughs) I would reward him for that. But he turns himself in today. And he will be arraigned. And I just want to let everybody know everyone's going to be everyone's shouting, you know, remand, no bail, et cetera. They aren't going to they're going to let him out on bail. And the reason is, is because they let him hang out all weekend and turn himself in on Monday. Exactly. If they thought he was a threat. Now, do I think he's a threat and a menace to society? Yes, I do. But if you know, if the prosecution says we want him remanded without bail because he's a threat and a a threat to society, and a flight risk, the judge will say, and the defense will say, then why'd you let him hang out all weekend and turn himself in on Monday? Yeah, it won't fly. So I don't think they're planning to argue for that. I just want to kind of give everybody I think you're right. Because yeah, if they had not done the weekend thing, I would have, I consider Ben in a flight risk. You kidding me? Some one way Russian flight to somewhere. (laughs) But yeah, Yeah. I actually thought you said virus. I consider him a virus. I I do. I consider him that as well. Yeah, me too. So anyway, that's a very cool thing that happened. And uh, oh, one really important thing that I probably, you know, we should talk about just for a quick second is Merrick Garland's statement on this. Definitely. Because, you know, he said, hey, I told you since we took office, I promised the Department of Justice employees that by word and by deed, we would follow the rule of law. Pretty much. I'm paraphrasing, but I, I feel like that's him saying... I'm doing shit, America. Like, 
and I promised I would, and I told you I would, and I did. You know, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see what else he's got in the works. Uh, something of note: we didn't know for that whole time. Nobody leaked to the Department of Justice. Nobody leaked that they were going to indict Bannon. Just like we didn't know that they were going to rude, uh, rude raid Rudy, a <laughs> rude raidy either way, rude raidy. And just like we didn't know they were going to indict Tom Barrick. So you know, this is a pretty tight-lipped Department of Justice. Now, yeah. I, I, I'm pretty sure that people like Bannon etc. haven't been subpoenaed to a grand jury in a criminal investigation by the Department of Justice because we would have heard about it from Bannon. But, you know, it doesn't mean they they aren't on their way there. We're still waiting for the inspector general to hand over the results of their, you know, investigation that started on January 25th into Trump officials of the Department of Justice planning to overthrow the 2020 election. So, yes, it's taking a long time. Yes, that's annoying. But um, hopefully some faith has been restored in the department. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's so much other news. There's so much. <laughs> there is. There is. Let's hit it. Let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. All right. Lead story today. Chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, who also serves on the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection, said the committee will move quickly to refer Mark Meadows, that's Trump's former chief of staff at the White House, for criminal contempt for not cooperating with its investigation. Quote, we have been moving very quickly to make these decisions, and I'm confident we'll move very quickly with respect to Mr. Meadows also. That's Adam Schiff on Meet the Press. But when ultimately witnesses decide, as Meadow has, that they're not even going to bother showing up, that they have that much contempt for the law, then it pretty much forces our hand and we will move quickly. Meadows failed to appear for a deposition Friday, setting up a potential showdown that could lead to the panel beginning a criminal referral process against him as well. Schiff also called Steve Bannon's indictment by the Department of Justice very positive news. I view this as an early test, he says, of whether democracy is recovering. If our laws to mean anything, it has to be applied equally. And so I'm very glad that the Justice Department has moved forward in this fashion. Bannon, a close ally of Trump, was charged with one count, as I said, related to his refusal to appear for a deposition and another for his refusal to produce documents. Each count carries a minimum. 30-day sentence and a maximum of one year in jail. I do not know if those can be served concurrently or if they must be served consecutively. So we'll see. And if you're wondering what that voice was in the background, <laughs> that sweet little meow, that's, that's that's meowing on the truth. That's what's happening there. Mark Meowdos must go to jail. Mark Meowdos. Meow. Now, my story top political officials in the Trump White House tried to block. This is a big fucking story. <laughs> and I'm dropping an F-bomb at the top because I'm actually pretty angry about it. Me too. Top political officials in the Trump White House tried to block public health guidance from the CDC and to eliminate evidence of political interference into scientists' report on the coronavirus. That's according to newly released documents. There are receipts from congressional investigators. Now, the latest documents from a House committee investigating the former administration's response to the pandemic shed additional light on the efforts of some of uh, the former guy's political appointees to blunt or even block the messages of career officials because they did not align with Trump's rosy projections. So during a press briefing on February 25th, 2020, the former senior CDC official, Nancy Massanier, warned about the coming dangers of COVID-19. I, I know a lot of us watch that. She told reporters that the spread of the coronavirus was essentially inevitable. Now, her statement angered the former guy, angered Trump, and the administration subsequently stopped granting CDC officials permission to brief the public. This is fucking insane. The agency held no briefings, no briefings from March until June during some of the earliest, most confusing times of the pandemic. 
Now, the White House Coronavirus Task Force began holding its own briefings that spring. I'm sure we all remember that as well. (laughs) Uh, The bleach and the whatever. (laughs) At the same time, other Trump officials tried to stop the CDC from publishing what the White House felt was negative information about the pandemic. By negative, it would make Trump look like a fucking idiot. Officials specifically tried to interfere with the CDC's morbidity and mortality weekly reports to make them better align with White House's more optimistic messaging about the state of the virus. So Christine Casey, the MMWR editor, which I just mentioned, confirmed to the committee that she was instructed to delete an email in which the former HHS political appointee Paul Alexander demanded that the CDC stop the publication of truthful scientific reports he believed were damaging to Trump. Now, Casey said she understood the instruction came from former CDC director Robert Redfield. Now, I hope criminal referrals will be made by the DOJ because this, and Mary has said this over and over, this is, it's, it's basically, I don't want to assist at homicide. It's, it's murder. It's pandemicide. If yes. that's not a word, it should be. Yep. <laughs> but that's exactly what this is. They knew. They knew so many lives could have been saved. They knew. Yeah, and I'm I'm with you. I'm wondering if this subcommittee made any referrals to the Department of Justice based on on this information. Deleting emails like that, I, you know, I, I I'm going to talk to some former U.S. prosecutors about what potential criminal liability there could be here, and if deleting those emails is considered obstruction of justice to whatever that crime is. Oh. I also have to wonder how stupid these people are to think that if you delete an email, it's just gone. <laughs> like that's all you have to do. Not a second step. The email's just gone. <laughs> It deletes it forever. This is also some big fucking news. And we have a new memo. We have a new coup memo. And it's not been made public until now. Then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows emailed Pence's top aide, Mark Short, on New Year's Eve, a detailed plan for undoing Joe Biden's election victory. And this is according to ABC News Chief Washington Correspondent Jonathan Carl. He's been all over the Pence stuff, aside from my breaking Pence story, which I hope he picks up and runs with. This memo, written by Jenna Ellis former traffic court lawyer, is reported for the first time in Carl's upcoming book, Betrayal. Of course. Why you shouldn't save this shit for books. No, that's not what it's called. That should be what it's fucking called. (laughs) (laughs) Betrayal, the final act of the Trump show, demonstrating how Pence was under even more pressure than previously known to overturn the election results. Ellis, in the memo, outlined a multi-step strategy. On January 6th, the day Congress was to certify the results, Pence was to send back the electoral votes from six battleground states that Trump falsely claimed he won. The memo said that Pence would give the states a deadline of 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on January 15th to send back a new set of electors. Then, Ellis wrote, if any state legislature missed that deadline, no electoral votes could be opened and counted from that state. Such a scenario would leave neither Biden nor Trump with 270 votes, Ellis wrote this, which would mean Congress shall vote by state delegation, which Ellis said would in turn lead to Trump being declared the winner due to Republicans controlling the majority of the state delegations with 26. The day after Mark Meadows sent Ellis's memo to Pence's aide on January 1st, Trump aide John McEntee sent a memo to Pence's chief of staff, Mark Short, as well, called Jefferson used his position as VP to win. Although McEntee's memo is historically incorrect, Carl says his message was clear. Jefferson took advantage of his position and Pence must do the same. Uh, March 18th, sit down interview with Trump for the upcoming book. March 18th, ladies and gentlemen, Carl asked the former president about a report from The New York Times that on the morning of January 6th, Trump pressured Pence with a crude phone call, reportedly telling his vice president, you can be a patriot or you can be a pussy. Trump didn't deny it. No. (laughs) 
March 18th interview. March 18th. Yeah. Early, early on. Now, this next one. An attorney representing the far-right Oath Keepers in civil lawsuit over the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol is asking to withdraw from the case, saying the group has failed to respond to his messages or pay him. I'm going to have you jump in here, A.G. Carrie Morgan <laughs> of counsel with the firm Hit It. Pentiuk, Curverer, Kobeljack, maybe. <laughs> That's what we're going with. It's it's not Skadden, Arps, Mager, and Flom. And it's not Goldberg, sure. Rosenstein, and Jew. Like, it's not them. <laughs> like, it's not a Jewish law firm. That's for sure. Pentiuk, Curverer, and Kobeljack. Like, could you pick, like, like I think, I feel like a bunch of lawyers with really hard to pronounce last names were like, eh, let's fucking start. Let's do me. that. And it also shows up five more times in the story, which is why I'm going to keep saying the law firm. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> anyway, Kerry Morgan from this law firm filed the motion Thursday. He's been representing the Oath Keepers in a lawsuit filed by Democratic members of Congress that alleges a conspiracy among that group and others, including former President Donald Trump, to block members of Congress from certifying the Electoral College results. This sort of touches on the last story we talked about. Now, Morgan wrote Thursday that his client has not communicated or responded to counsel after counsel reached out several times and there has been a breakdown of communication. They must not have taken an oath. <laughs> Get the fuck out of here. Okay, sorry. <laughs> She'll be here all week, people. She actually will. He also said the group has not paid legal fees and costs due and owing the law firm and have not provided information to the undersigned if and when the legal fees and costs will be paid. So the attorney said he requested that the Oath Keepers find new legal representation and on November 1st told the group that he would be filing the motion to withdraw. This is a quote on, well, it's sort of a quote. On November 10th, 2021, the law firm did not hear from defendant Oath Keepers nor receive a substitution of counsel necessitating the filing of this motion. And that's what the filing read. Now, when reached out for comment, Morgan declined to elaborate, writing in an email, at this point, the pleadings are sufficient. So Morgan was previously active in the litigation, filing a motion to dismiss in May and responding to the opposition to that motion in July. And it did not appear that Morgan is actively representing the Oath Keepers in any other federal court proceeding. That's according to publicly available court records. He's currently part of the legal team representing gun rights groups in a challenge to the recent federal ban against owning bump stocks, which was heard last month by the en banc U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. So this guy's clearly a piece of shit if he's actually uh, on the legal team representing gun rights groups so that you can use uh, bump stocks in in, in guns. Yeah. And something interesting about this, this reminds me, and, and this reporting, previous reporting wasn't mentioned in this current reporting, but if you, do you remember there was a lawyer for the Oath Keepers who had her phone seized yes. in a raid with a search warrant with one of the potential crimes being seditious conspiracy. Yeah. Not just conspiracy, but seditious conspiracy. And we know that Chris Ray has said that they're looking into seditious conspiracy, as did, I think, uh, what was his name? Michael Shea, the former U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia before the Connor, Connie Phillips came in. And, and I can't remember the name Phillips. I know Phillips came in as acting. But this past Friday or November 5th, Friday, Matthew Graves was finally confirmed and took over at the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. So what I'm hoping is is what seems to have stalled for so long will start picking up. I'm going to give the, the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office a couple of weeks to do that before I start making noise again. Yeah. But if that lawyer, I don't know if that lawyer worked for this 
for the firm. The firm. I'm, we're not doing it, people. I'm telling you. We don't even deserve to name them eight times the, in one article. The Engelbert Humperdinck Cumberbatch. I'm far from Nugal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I don't know what the, I don't know if that's the same firm or not, but they, she was associated with the Oath Keepers and she was being uh, investigated for seditious conspiracy. Anyway, we have a, a really great interview coming up next. It's going to be a surprise. I'm not going to tell you who it is. So you're going to have to just wait. And see. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're going to love it, though. And uh, then we'll have the good news after that. So everybody stick around. We'll be right back. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's Allison. Getting a good night's sleep is so important to our health and well-being and our immune system. It's my favorite thing. Sleeping is my favorite. It really is. And I used to toss and turn all night because of anxiety. Um, I thought it was because of, you know, who was in the White House. Uh, But as it turns out, I was sleeping on the wrong mattress. But thankfully, I found Helix Sleep. To get the best night's sleep of your life, do what I did. Take the online sleep quiz at helixsleep.com slash dailybeans. Helix will match your sleep preferences and body type uh, with a mattress that's perfect for you and how you sleep. They have soft, medium, and firm mattresses. They have mattresses that regulate body temperature. So if you sleep hot, they really help, which I do. They have ones great for spinal alignment to prevent morning pains and even a Helix Plus for our beautiful plus side sleepers. My quiz matched me with a Helix Midnight because I like a medium firm mattress and I sleep on my side. So it's perfect for me. And now I wake up feeling rested and refreshed and energized for the day. Helix has over 12,000 five-star reviews and they were awarded number one best overall mattress pick in 2020 by GQ and Wired Magazine. Helix has been recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a solution for improving sleep. And they have a 10-year warranty, 10 years, and you get to try it out for 100 sleeps, risk-free. And they have financing options and flexible payment plans. And they're right now they're offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for you at helixsleep.com slash dailybeans. That's helix, H-E-L-I-X, sleep.com slash dailybeans for up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows. Today's show is also brought to you by Cometeer, the most delicious coffee brewed better through science. Cometeer is frozen, pre-brewed coffee in pocket-sized recyclable capsules that you melt to make. No equipment needed. With Cometeer, you're always just a minute away from barista quality coffee and lattes. I remember my mom used to have that freeze-dried instant coffee. This is so much better and fast and delicious. In fact, I used to drink coffee with cream and sugar, a bunch of it. But Cometeer is so balanced and smooth and delicious, I can have it black. Cometeer is so simple to make. They discovered a new way to make it. After the brewing process, the coffee is flash frozen to lock in all the aromas and freshness. And then you melt it. You just add the frozen coffee capsule to a cup of hot water. And for iced coffee, just pour the melted coffee into water with ice. Yes, it's iced coffee in 10 seconds flat. And lattes are just as easy. Cometeer arrives each month to my house, features the best regional specialty roasters with enough capsules for 32 cups. It's a delicious variety. Uh, I've always wanted something like this. And we have a special offer just for you. For a limited time, you can get $20 off your first order, 10 free cups, and free shipping. Free shipping. Well, shipping is always free. But when you visit cometeer.com slash beans20, that's cometeer, C-O-M-E-T-E-E-R dot com slash beans20. I was skeptical at first. I mean, it's brewed coffee you melt to make, but it's truly one of the best, if not the best cup of coffee I've ever had. Like Elf, congratulations, you did it. It's the best cup of coffee in the world. So if you like coffee at all, this is a taste to believe product. That's cometeer.com slash beans20 to save $20 on your first order. A new day has arrived on earth for coffee. That's cometeer, C-O-M-E-T-E-E-R.com slash beans20. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I am honored today to be speaking with the founder of the Center for Transformational Change, which is a woman of color led global impact platform that cultivates the narrative power of communities to catalyze social transformation. I'm very excited to speak with you today. Please welcome Lena Srivastava. Thank you so much for having me. 
I am so glad that you're here because this is such important work. And I know that the people who listen to this show understand the power of communities because, you know, our listenership, we have a very powerful community and we do, you know, utilize it to, to catalyze change, but to also support each other. Talk a little bit about what led you to, I guess, put together this this group. Was there already a community that you wanted to like build on or, or was it something that you started from scratch? Tell us about it. Yeah. So, I mean, I've been working at the intersection of human rights and international development for God, almost two decades now. It's been about 20 years. And um, for the last 13 years, I've been running a company, my own company called CL, the Creative Impacts and Experience Lab. And that company was dedicated specifically to narrative strategy and narrative shift. It was looking at like, how do you use storytelling and how do you use narrative for human rights and advocacy? How do you do it for program design and international development and such? And it was beautiful work. I I, I loved it. Um, We did some really beautiful projects around migration. I did a lot of work with documentary films and filmmakers, you know, worked around the world in Latin America and East Africa and South Asia and Southern Europe as well. Did a lot of work with refugees and and migrants and some climate justice work and such. And sort of around 20, around 2015, 2016, uh, the Rockefeller Foundation sort of came to me and someone, a woman named Nancy McPherson, just brilliant, and wanted to sort of start documenting what kind of leadership it took to sort of catalyze transformation, social transformation in and from communities. And the, uh, the, the reason that she wanted to do is because there was this woman named Barine Rahman, um, who was in working with an organization called Arungi, the Arungi town pilot project. And they, um, they were doing amazing work on water access with informal communities, land rights and such. And Barine Rahman was assassinated and it, she had documented none of her, you know, none of her process. She was extremely affected as a community advocate. She was dearly beloved. You know, she was really good. And it, her death, her murder really sent shockwaves through, you know, through the development community, through Rockefeller and such. But we realized that, you know, she had this fantastic process and didn't really document. And so we started thinking about how do you document that process? And what do you derive from it? What do you learn from it? And so I developed a framework um, with, with Rockefeller called Transformational Change Leadership Project. And it's a free framework. It's Creative Commons licensed. Anybody can use it. It's at tcleadership.org. Anybody who's in community building, movement, organizing, human rights, development, whatever, anybody can use this resource to figure out how they catalyze transformation in their own sector. Based on that, though, in like 2018, I started looking at my beautiful little studio, my little you know company called CL, and realized that it wasn't sort of fit for purpose anymore in the fight against like fascism, right? So we were like in the middle of Trumpism, you know, people like all around the world, anywhere from like Orban to Modi to Bolsonaro, everything like there, there was just this, it, it, I had started the last company in 2008 and worked with local communities, worked on their stories, worked on using their stories for, for change. And yet I was this little innovation studio in New York City. And it felt like, you know, when I hit the 10-year mark of that company, I thought, do I grow up bigger or do I start something totally different that is confronting, you know, these larger, deeper, darker questions of authoritarianism and climate change and everything. And so I decided to shut that one down. It took three years to shut it down. 
and three years to plan the new company, which launched on September 29th. And it adopts all the work that we did at CL with narrative and combines the work that I did with the Rockefeller grant um, on transformation and leadership and mashes it all up to start confronting all the intersecting crises that we're looking at right now. Climate, authoritarianism, inequality, gender, and displacement, and the systems around those. And how do we, how do we start telling and sharing and using story, using narrative to create um, forward movement pathways to change? Because the signals are out there. The, community, the communities that are affected by these things are already doing this work. So there's, there's hope. There's definitely hope, but we now have to harness it and catalyze change using it. So are you applying, you know, because we went in and reverse engineered the process that uh, unfortunately after her murder was, you know, didn't leave a process for you, kind of reverse engineered it with with the help of the Rockefeller grant. And as you said, a lot has happened since then. And so are you still using that and and trying to put it through the lens of where we are now with all these intersectional crises, as you say, and and trying to develop sort of it for where we are now? And, you know, like you said, not just facing climate change, but autocracy. We have now we're going to have so many Afghan refugees that are going to be joining us. And and I'm looking forward to that. And and they're they're I'm, I'm interested to know practically what it looks like to apply this platform through this new lens. Yeah, sure. So, yes, we are. We're, I'm still using that work. So, what we did with Burmi uh, and Ramon's story is we used it as the basis to start thinking about how you catalyze change, right? And we started. We, I worked with the Institute of Development Studies in Sussex, uh, the university there, and we sort of we started with 400 different organizations and people around the world who were doing who sort of fit a framework of of, of transformation. And we developed this, you know, sort of the seven characteristic process um, that I said that anybody can use. And so we we whittled it down um, from 400 to through 28 examples. Um, and we're going to be adding more stories about how change happens now, how change happens, or how change has happened in the past that that guides what we should be doing. And the way we use the way we apply is that we work with organizations or or individuals, like individual artists, individual filmmakers who are change makers themselves to figure out how they, how they mobilize people and how they create systems themselves that are based on um, community, community engagement, community-led decision-making, community-led through consultation, how they can be collaborative, how they can assess and mitigate risk and then also just how do they how do they like instant how do they like create build and and implement their vision this is how we you know so this is how we're thinking about catalyzing change and so i've worked in the past i've worked with anywhere from like you know sort of individual filmmakers like josh fox for example who is you know just amazing amazing climate change amazing anti-fracking activist i've been working with him now for god for 10 years mm-hmm. and we yeah, and we and we we we've talked quite a bit around, you know, how do you anywhere from strategic planning for his like you know organization to how do you create in stakeholder engagement or how do you how do you how do you work with people who are funding renewable tech or green tech? How do you engage local communities who want to 
adopt renewable tech in their uh, and, and green energy in their in their local communities? Like, what do you what do you do? How do you do this? How do you engage them? How do you create films and music events and you know things like that that get them to the table? So that's like that's one way. Another way is like you know working with you know I just finished working with the you know International Red Cross um, ICRC on thinking through how they represent people in their communications. Like how, how do you transform the way they include affected communities in their own storytelling? So it's like, it, it's anywhere from like, you know, deep community organizing with like climate activists and human rights act- activists to like working with organizations that are like, how do we, how do we use our story better? And sort of everything in, in everything in between. So it's, it's, but it's always, it always comes back to making sure that community storytelling and the lived experience of people who are most affected, that that becomes a driver of change, that that's a data point, Mm. right? That that is always, whether it's them telling their own stories and talking about the effects of our decisions, our policies on the lives that they lead, whether they're doing it themselves or they have a proxy through the films we show and, and make or you know, the, the reports we create or the books we write or the tweets we send really like, (laughs) right. I mean, how are they always going to be present, you know, and it's not about being precious. Like I think that sometimes we, we talk about like, like local communities or, you know, things like that. And, and we become very precious about it or, you know, we sort of mischaracterize who they are. I want them to be seen the people who are most affected by climate or displacement or, you know, when I look about, look at what's happening the U.S.-Mexico border right now, you talked about Afghan refugees. I'm also looking, I'm working with people who are thinking about, you know, Haitians who are coming in now, working with people who are working with Haitians in country right now. Mm. You know, how, how, how do we make sure that their voices are part of decision-making? How do we make sure that their voices are part of the evidence that we need, right? So that it's not top-down. So it's not just, you know, that we make sure that they are included at all times. And that lived experience is a form of expertise. And that's really, really important. That sort of like comes down to like, if you shave down to the core of the work that I'm trying to do, like, how do you transform? You make sure that the people who are being most affected are part of decision-making. Like that's step number one. There's a lot more to it, but that's like step number one. That's number Yeah. Uh, And I really love the idea of, of applying like a roadmap to develop these strategies to realize vision and catalyze change. And I want to talk a little bit more about why storytelling is such a powerful tool to do that. But I need to take a quick break. Will you stay with me? Sure, absolutely. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. It's AG. And this segment of the show is brought to you by Allform. They craft quality, customizable furniture delivered right to your door. Allform creates premium furniture tailored to meet your needs. They ship it to your doorstep free of charge. It's amazing. With Allform, you can customize your own luxury furniture using premium materials, but at a fraction of the cost of traditional stores. I chose a three-seater sofa in whiskey-colored leather with walnut legs and a chaise lounge. It's comfortable and stylish, and it looks great. Allform ships fast. It arrives in the mail in just three to seven days, and it's easy to put together. No tools are required. They have beautiful armchairs and love seats all the way up to eight-seat sectionals. You can always start small and add on later if you want. Best of all, you get 100 days to decide if you want to keep it, which is more than three months. And if you don't love it, there's no risk. They'll pick it up for free and give you a full refund. They also have a forever warranty, literally forever. So to find your perfect sofa, check out allform.com slash dailybeans. And Allform is offering 20% off all orders for our listeners at allform.com slash dailybeans. And today's show is also brought to you by Upstart. 
with a credit balance hanging over your head month after month, making the minimum payments, you'll never get out of that hole. It's, it's, it just goes on endlessly. It's a never-ending cycle of debt without any relief. But you can make that final payment with Upstart and take control of your debt. It's easy to pay off your debt with an online personal loan with Upstart. Over a million people have used Upstart to consolidate high-interest debt and pay off credit cards and fund personal expenses with one fixed low monthly payment. Upstart looks beyond just your credit score to find a better loan rate with their trusted partners by considering other factors like your income and your employment history. And you can check your rate without impacting your credit score in minutes. It's a soft pull. It's free and it takes just minutes. So you can see if you can lower your interest rate. It's like you have to do this. And they, they do this for loans between $1,000 to $50,000. And you can even receive your funds in one business day after your loan is accepted. So Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payment when you go to upstart.com slash dailybeans. That's upstart.com slash dailybeans. And please use our URL to let them know we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit income and certain other information provided in your loan application. That's upstart.com slash dailybeans. Everybody, welcome back. We're talking with Lina Sravastava. She's the founder of the Center for Transformational Change. And before the break, Lina, we were discussing kind of that first step, right, toward realizing either a group or an artist or an individual's vision. And do you find it easier to catalyze change, sell change and transformation using the power of case studies and storytelling? Because I thought it was really important that you mentioned, you know, when we work and when you work with individuals and communities, that it's important that their voices be amplified and not subsumed or assimilated, right? And what are some of the components of storytelling or case study? I just got out of a doctoral dissertation a couple of years ago, so I'm like, hmm, case studies. What are some of the components of storytelling that make it such a powerful tool to keep those voices amplified? Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to answer your question in two ways. One is that you mentioned case studies. Like, there are so many different forms of story. Like, often we don't, we think of story sometimes just as like message or like the little like this one little component of, you know, sort of like the, the beginning, the middle and the end, right? So there's so many different ways of conveying a story. And sometimes it's a case study, which are very powerful, right? In terms of like teaching, teaching people the, the, the pathway, like how other people have done it, what can you learn from it? So I use case studies a lot. The entire transformational change leadership thing is, is like a series of case studies, right? And that's, that's one form of story. Another form of story is, you know, is, is fiction, right? Fiction is really important to, to use. And it's, I think it's underused in social change. And I, I, want, I want to see more of that. I'd love to see more of it, in, in, especially in the climate justice um, realm. And then there's, you know, different, there's, there's articles, there's journalism, there's documentary, there's all of those different things. There's so many different ways to tell a story. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that makes it really important because we swim in it. We are all, you know, we're not all good storytellers, but we are all storytellers. <laughs> and, you know, and I think like, you know, there, there, there's a quote from someone named Jeff Chang, who I'm totally going to butcher it, but it's like, you know, we, you know, we're affected by politics and policy and it's out there, but we swim in culture, right? It's like, we are always living in culture and it's something that touches everyone and storytelling and narrative are, are very, they're, they're pillars, right? They're, they're within, within culture and, and culture change. And so I think that's what makes it also really powerful. The, the third reason I think it's powerful is because it is human, right? It is, you know, often I, I have this line that I dash off when I give talks and lectures. It's like, you know, you can't make social change on an Excel spreadsheet. It, it doesn't, it's not animated, hmm. right? It's like, I, it's very hard for me. I think it's numeric data and spreadsheets are absolutely crucial. I'm not 
denigrating it at all. And I think it's absolutely important, but it's really hard for me to know what any given person, like I, I'm not going to be able to understand what a Haitian migrant is going through in Del Rio right now uh, by reading a spreadsheet. I don't know what an Afghan refugee, you know, sort of trying to exit the country is going through unless I hear their story. I don't know what it's like, you know, I mean, I know what it's like because I'm a woman uh, and I'm a cis, you know, het woman, but you know, I need to know the effect of the Texas, the, the Texas law and actual Texan women. Like I need to know that. And just, you know, reading the numbers doesn't help me. Mm-hmm. So storytelling helps me. It's, it's a driver of change because it conveys to me the opportunities, the risks, the damage from the policies, the decisions, the resource flow, whatever it is, those things that affect our daily lives on a geopolitical basis or on a very hyperlocal basis, I need to know the effect of what it means to people living day to day. And I can only get that through story. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's like the difference of, you know, getting a definition of a word and having somebody use it in a sentence, right? You're um, or as Mitch Hedberg said, use it in a play. And, you know, it gives you context and understanding of these different lived experiences. And I've, I've also noticed, too, you know, while you mentioned there are a million different ways to tell a story, there are also a million different things you can apply the power of storytelling to. Yeah. I, and I hate to end a, a sentence in a preposition, <laughs> but um, just how I speak, I guess. It must have been why it was so hard to get through that dissertation. But I, you know, I'm thinking of, you know, when I worked for the federal government, Department of Veterans Affairs, doing mentorship and all that other stuff, we always we constantly talked about storytelling in leadership, right, particularly transformational and servant leadership and how it's important to to sell change to a group of people using context and storytelling. And uh, because you're you're right, it just provides this this context. And I think it helps people understand more about the place of the uh, of the point of the story i guess is 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 what i'm trying to get at and and i i've always found it very very a very useful tool for for that as well so maybe talk a little bit with me about how it's not just kind of community outreach where where storytelling is is has an impact but all i mean just uh, you know run the gamut of of things that leaders try to do, I think it becomes a very powerful, a very powerful tool to provide that context. Yeah. I mean, you know, when I'm being like, when I'm speaking technically or like, you know, in terms of like being wonky, I talk about how storytelling and narrative are really important, not just for messaging and outreach, but also for like program design and evaluation and, and as, you know, to, to sort of create a basis for advocacy or to convey, you know, how you, your journey, like how you got to where you are. Like leaders do that quite a bit. It's like, how, where did I start? How did I get here? You know, all that kind of stuff. Um, but it's also really important, like when you're trying to either, you know, sort of like try to get government to change policy, when you're trying to get a corporation to like commit to a different kind of relationship with this, you know, vendors or suppliers or buyers or whatever, storytelling becomes really important. There's sort of two different ways. I'll just tell you very, two very quick stories. Um, one is, you know, I worked on a project called Who is Diane Cristal? And the film was opening night film at Sundance in 2013. We had started working on the court issue of that. So when I say we, I mean me and the filmmaker, uh, Mark Silver, had started working on a question of borders and what do borders do to people back in like 2008 or 2009. And um, 
the subject of the film came up. And in 2010, a man died crossing the U.S.-Mexico border 20 minutes from Tucson mm. by car. And his death sort of opened up these questions of how do we how do we prevent border death? How do we prevent border crossing death? And it sort of became this entire 10 year, was it 10? Yeah, 10 year arc almost, um, nine year arc of telling stories around definitely crossing the U.S.-Mexico border, but also border crossing around the world. And what does it mean? What does it mean politically? What does it mean in terms of the communities that are sending people? How do we prevent border death? How do we sort of allay the risks of leaving and receiving? And we we did an entire sort of web-based campaign platform. It was based on this two-hour film that was at Sundance, but then there were short films, there were clips, there was a book that we wrote, there were all these different things. And we did it anywhere from like working with small organizations around the world to the community represented, the, the man's name was Dulce Johan, his family, his community in Honduras, all the way up to like the U.S. Congress, where we showed, you know, to the border caucus and the Hispanic caucus, we showed like a cut of the wall. And we, we just did this entire sort of, you know, we, we spread it everywhere we possibly could. And we did audience engagement and, and stakeholder engagement and community engagement, all those things, but then also raised money for, you know, a new water system in the community. Like we just did everything we possibly could. And there's a whole impact report that we wrote, if you want to look at it, about how we did that at whoisdinningcrystal.com. And then sort of fast forward to, la- to last year, I worked with this organization, no, sorry, a group of activists and, and artists, 80 activists and artists who did something completely different, which was send up planes that sky types right over detention centers in the U.S. because, you know, detention of migrants is at, you know, at an all-time high in these private companies. And we did sort of community outreach, but also, you know, so sort of did general audience outreach, right? Like making sure it was in, it was written up in the New York Times. We had an amazing set of people who were like, looking after us in terms of, you know, getting the word out, but it was gorgeous. It was really gorgeous. And in this way, we, we, we worked with, you know, a number of organizations on the ground, immigration rights organizations, border organizations, people in receiving communities, and then also general audiences, like people, there were so many hits of people like stopping on the highway saying, what is that being written over X? You know, it was really, I mean, it was gorgeous, really beautiful. There are so many different ways to tell a story. <laughs> yeah, skywriting. <laughs> you know, so we always engage audiences, and like we ju- we're just limited by well, we're limited by sometimes our imaginations, I suppose, but we're definitely limited by resources. Yeah, and so that's what we're going to like move the dial on. And I think we're also limited by bureaucracy, and that's and the last thing I wanted to ask you about was that piece because it, it's a slog, right? Because the first story you told me, I was immediately thinking of. You know, I was part of a documentary in 2012 called The Invisible War about military sexual trauma. Yeah. And when that came out, that's when we started talking about legislation to change the reporting structure so that 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 men and women would have a safe place to report, at least, you know, start with step one. And that's a series of stories that sort of moved people into in that direction. Now, here we are almost a decade later. We're on the verge of getting that legislation passed. But, you know, how how would you recommend people kind of cope with the the slog of bureaucracy? Because I, I feel like people can become fatigued or feel like, you know, it's just taking too long. And uh, especially if you're you're coming from a point of trauma trying to get something changed. 
Yeah. How how does the how does that sort of incorporate my because my idea is just keep telling stories, find more people, tell more stories, get get the push across. I think the thing that pushed this across after a decade was that finally a Republican had a story to tell about. And this is Joni Ernst about her own treatment in the military. And now she has a daughter who is facing problems in the military. So I think those stories kind of move people. And, you know, like you said, that's the kind of the power of the case study or the uh, the individual story. But how do, how do we deal with the, the wheels of justice grind slowly, <laughs> Lena? How do we deal with that? They grind extremely. I mean, I think we have to acknowledge that. I think that's, you know, I think it's really important. One of the one of the characteristics that we lay out in transformational change leadership, like how you catalyze change. The second one is perseverance. No, it's the third one. Sorry. It's vision, empathy, perseverance. Yeah. I have to memorize my own framework. (laughs) And perseverance is really, it's about adaptation and innovation, but it's also about patience. It's about learning that, yeah, the wheels of justice, they, they, you know, they do grind very slowly and sometimes it grind to a halt and you have to figure out how to get it out of the mud. I'm mixing so many metaphors here, but you know, but it's, it's really important that we understand that on the one hand, we have zero time to wait. You know, when you look at inequality, when you look at climate change, when you look at displacement, when you look at what's happening, with, especially with all the backward slide around the world on gender, mm. it's, it's incredible. We, we literally don't have any time to wait to transform. At the same time, we need absolute patience because it doesn't happen overnight. Nothing happens overnight. You know, nothing. And it's, I think what we have to teach each other and what we have to hold each other in is, is patience and understanding that you're going to have to keep doing this over. It's a lifelong commitment, mm-hmm. you know? And one of the things that we, when I was, when I used to give talks around transformational change leadership before the pandemic locked all that down is that I would say, you know, anybody can be a transformational change leader, anybody, but you got to commit to it for your whole life. And understand that they're going to be set for every single success. They're going to be like 10 setbacks. Yeah. And you just have to keep, and you have to keep going. That's really the way. And, but the success then is the, the impact, the shift, the change, the transformation. It's just so much sweeter. You know, it really is. And, uh, you know, it's, it's hard right now. Everything's so hard. Everything is just, everything is intersecting and, you know, between the pandemic and these climate emergencies and, you know, the uprisings after George Floyd's murder last year, you know, everything intersecting. It's just like people, I can see people losing hope, but there's so many signals and there's so much hope and there's so much, you know, sort of action around the world. That's really beautiful. I think it sort of teaches us that we can, I mean, there, there is possibility. We don't have a lot of time. I will, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll say that we don't have a lot of time to, to dither anymore and we really need to find the political will, but, uh, but there is hope. And so, yeah, you have to, you have to slog through the bureaucracy, but it is possible. Yeah. And you know, it is, it is a journey. Uh, we might have an end goal in mind, but I, I think maybe also it, it helps to sort of take solace in the small wins along the way because they exist. You know, when we talk about uh, George Floyd, we have such a long way to go for social justice uh, in this country and justice system reform and policing reform. But, you know, we had a, a conviction with Chauvin. The parole board in Houston has now put in to posthumously pardon George Floyd for a $10 cracks deal that it, for 2004, for which he served 10 months, by the way. And, you know, insurrectionists are getting no jail time or 45 days. 
but these I think it's also important to to see these small wins and, and and revel in them and then continue to move forward. I think that that that's at least what helps me along the way. These little you know, holding the the former administration accountable, these little things like a, a Tom Barrick indictment here or a Matt Gates is under investigation there or, you know, Rudy is being raided in April. It's like, OK, little wins will work toward the final thing, but also recognize you might never you might not get there ultimately. But it's the building and it's the body of work and, and, and other people can pick up the torch where you leave off. Yeah, exactly. It's a relay race, right? I mean, and every single win is additive. Right. And you can't take that away there. There is backslide. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm, I am very scared of the December, you know, sort of the December hearing that may overturn Roe v. Wade, for example, like that SCOTUS. Like I'm, I'm like terrified of that. But it's really hard. Like once a community or a population gets culturally used to a certain right or a certain way of being, it is very hard to take that away from them. You know, there will, I mean, there will be backlash to the backlash, right? Yeah, we saw it with um, the Affordable Care Act. Exactly. Once it was, and then, wow, try to run in 2018 at that midterm yeah. uh, against it. Try, just try. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, having said that, you know, I'll, I will say that, you know, being in communication with, say, women, you know, women who are talking to women in, in Afghanistan, I mean, you know, it, you can have a backslide very, very fast. Yeah. So we have to protect our rights um, and we have to and we have to help our sisters and brothers around the world who are getting their rights trampled. Upon. Yeah, that's the one thing that can happen overnight is the backslide. Oh. SB8, like you said, is a perfect example of that. And now it's like, oh, overnight. Now we have we're all the way back here. We have to keep moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. But but you can when people are, you know, when people have enjoyed a certain right yeah. or a certain way of being and that's taken away from them they will react. Oh, yes. right? So, I mean, that's, we have to keep, we have to keep that energy, you know, flowing and just realize that, you know, we are in this for the long haul. It's not going to happen. None of, none, none of what we want, whether it's in climate or, or displacement or in, you know, sort of women's rights or, or, you know, sort of trans rights, whatever, none of this is going to happen overnight. Yeah. Inequality is not going to be fixed overnight, but the more people we gather along the way, the more the more wins we're going to have and they will be added. Yeah, the more batons we have in the air, the more stories we we can tell. So this has been really wonderful. I appreciate your time today. Can you tell everyone where they can find more information, maybe where they can find this framework, maybe where they can support your organization? Sure. So Center for Transformational Change is at transformationalchange.co. That's the website. You can get to the framework from there. Just click through, learn with us to that page. And we're on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at CFT Change. Thank you so much for your time today. Founder of Center for Transformational Change, Lena Svrvastava, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hello, it's AG. And this portion of the show was brought to you by Wealthfront. A lot of investment apps make it easy to start trading, but then they kind of leave you hanging in the wind. They don't teach you anything. And if you don't know what you're doing, it can be dangerous. That's what makes Wealthfront different. They make it easy to invest and they make it easy to get smarter about it. Start with Wealthfront's classic portfolio or make it your own with socially responsible funds, crypto trusts, and hundreds of other investments. Either way, they'll set you up in minutes with a portfolio you can count on for the long term. Wealthfront has de uh, was designed by financial experts to help you turn your good ideas into great investments without the hassle of doing everything yourself. You're protected from unnecessary risk because your portfolio is diversified across asset classes. 
And if you don't want to spend hundreds of hours trying to lower your tax bill, that's cool. They help you do that. And if you're not sure how to rebalance your portfolio, or you're like me and you don't know what rebalancing is, they do it automatically. Wealthfront is trusted with over $27 billion in assets, helping nearly half a million people build their wealth. And you can get your first $5,000 managed for free at wealthfront.com slash dailybeans. It takes just minutes to start building your wealth. So visit wealthfront.com slash dailybeans. That's wealthfront, F-R-O-N-T dot com slash dailybeans. And today's show is brought to you by my favorite underwear in the universe. It's called Tomboy X. They have other stuff too, but their underwear is my faves. I mean, it's all good, but oh, I have like, like I, I replaced all of my underwear with Tomboy X. And this is going to be like all of my holiday gifts are going to be from Tomboy X. I searched high and low for new underwear because my previous ones never fit. They didn't look right on me or the I have I'm really high waisted. So the waistbands would roll down all the time. But Tomboy X made underwear that gets me. I love my new boy shorts. I got the metamorphosis print and I love the way they fit. They look awesome. My butt is covered in butterflies. Who, who could ask for anything more? They have boldly, unapologetically all-inclusive underwear since 2014. Tomboy X caters to clients of every body type, shape, gender, and size. All sizes, from boxer briefs to bikinis and boy shorts to bras. Every Tomboy X pair is made to fit you and how you see yourself. Besides underwear, they offer loungewear, swimwear, socks, tees, and other accessories. Quality, fit, and inclusivity are the hallmarks of every product at Tomboy X. And their attention to detail includes no back seams to ensure comfortable fit that never rides up. And like I said, those silky waistbands that don't roll down, no matter what size or shape you are. Tomboy X has the underwear that all bodies will love. And with their love at first wear guarantee, you can order risk-free while you find your perfect fit. Discover your inner Tomboy. And let me get you started with our special discount code. Go to TomboyX.com. And enter code DAILYBEANS, all one word, to get an extra 20% off. That's an extra 20% off when you enter the word DAILYBEANS, all one word, at TomboyX.com. Get all your holiday shopping done and 20% off at TomboyX.com with the uh, code DAILYBEANS, all one word. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Well, we'll float all good news is on the way. I'm so glad to have you back with me to read the good news, my friend. It is good to be back and I need some good news in my life. Well, awesome. We, we shall make that happen. Give it to me. Here's some Patreon good news. There's now a way to gift a subscription directly to someone you know, if you want to give them a premium feed. So you get ad free episodes of this show, Muller She Wrote and the MSW Book Club and all the meet and greet stuff and Zoom happy hours and whatnot. But you can gift that subscription directly to someone that you know by going to dailybeans.supercast.com and choose gift a subscription at the top of the page. You can still donate a subscription anonymously by going to dailybeanspod.com and scrolling down at the bottom and find patrons sponsoring patrons. That's also where you can sign up to receive an anonymously donated one year premium feed. All right. So first up from Jan, no pronouns given. Hello. This year, I realized a dream of moving to the mountains near Asheville, North Carolina. It's so beautiful there. I was shocked when I discovered this artsy and progressive area was represented by right-wing extremist bot Madison Cawthorn. I subscribed to the Asheville Citizen Times, and on the front page this morning is unbelievably good news. My congressional district, now District 14, has been redrawn to include Democratic-leaning cities. Cawthorn is going to run in the new 13th district. Let's hope he's not reelected. Yay. Yes, let's hope so indeed. I actually didn't know that. That's, I mean, Nashville, North Carolina is actually a very liberal, gay, yeah. super lesbo area. Yeah, I'm glad they got the, the lines right this time. Yeah, absolutely. All right, this next one's from M, pronounced they, them. 
Greetings from a blue county in a red state where we just elected Dems across the board in our local elections. I'm wondering if this is Utah. I have to wonder because that actually happened. Also, did you see the article about the conviction of the man leaving death threats for Ilhan Omar? Sometimes the bad ones do face real consequences. Hallelujah. Yeah. My pet tax included my girl snoozing in a blanket nest. Dude, I love blanket nests. And I could oh, be wrong, and I'm sure someone will correct me, but I do believe that the board, uh, the city council maybe of Salt Lake or one of the Utah, something went all Democrat, like, and elected a bunch of LGBTQ people and people of color. It was really interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if it was Utah, but a, a couple of Utah, states that Colorado, happened. Colorado, something like that. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there was a lot of them. And yeah. let us know where you're from. We'd love to celebrate. We'll celebrate. Uh, we'll celebrate now anyway, but, you know, we could celebrate more specifically later also. Totally. It deserves two celebrations. Look at the babies. No, I baby. can't. I know I they're can't. so cute. That, that dog looks so soft. Okay. Next up from pronoun she and her anonymous. Thanks for your service, AG and all who served. Thanks to DG, Amy and the wonderful guests for sharing the truth. For the shit kids say, teenage granddaughter and friend smelling incense at the mall. One says to the other, oh my God, do not smell the patchouli. It smells like hippies. <laughs> <laughs> I died laughing. <laughs> Since you demand Halloween picks till Thanksgiving, I give you my homemade put me in a box costume. I might be in my 50s, but I'm still a kid at Halloween. And for pet tax, I give you the masters of our house, Chloe and Angel, Siamese, trying to get in some cuddle time. Oh. May you all have a wonderful holiday season. So many versions of Hallelujah to sing this year. Indeed. Oh, oh my goodness. Oh, <laughs> What? That Halloween costume is fantastic. <laughs> That's the best costume. Oh, the look on the face, too. That is good shit right there. And I love your shoes. I know. Those shoes are great. Those are great. Okay. All right. This one's from Julie. Pronouns she, her, or they, them. Pet tax a la carte. Heine <laughs> showed up in a dream of mine the day he was born. I was in a bar, of course, and I asked whose black dachshund was in the booth across the bar. Someone said that he was mine and said, you know, it's Heine. I had put Sprocket down just eight months earlier, and until the night, Sprocket was in every dream I had. I felt like Sprocket gave me Heine, and that's where I got Heine's name from, that dream. Yeah, the next day, very first dog that popped up on Pet Finder was Heine. Get the fuck out. Now, I know he was showing, he was slowing down since I had to let Dolce go two years ago, so I was mentally prepared. Now, this afternoon, Heine went to be with Dolce. His absolute BFF. Aww. I will miss you so much. Mm. You were so very loved. And there's a broken heart and a heart and some puppy feet. Attached pictures, mm. Pomeranian is Sprocket. Red healer is Dolce. And the long-haired mini dachshund is Henrik, otherwise known as Heine. Mm. Look at the palm. Now listen, I admittedly am not always the biggest fan of Pomeranians, but I think I would take this one and drive off as fast as I could. Oh, these babies all Look together again. All together oh, again. They're beautiful. We'll miss you, dear. Thank Heine. you for sharing that with us, Julie. I'm. I am so sorry they've crossed over the rainbow bridge, but the way that you told the story in such a a beautiful glass is half full was wonderful. Thank you. Although Heine looks real suspicious. Heine's like, okay, am I going? Wait, where are my friends at? <laughs> Excuse me. Excuse me. What? <laughs> what a baby. Oh, so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that, and uh, sending you loves and hugs. By the way. 
Next up from Anna Marie, pronoun she and her. I have a shit kids say. My 12-year-old son has always been quick-witted and funny. You may remember an early pandemic submission for me in which I mentioned my kids enjoying Weird Al songs and making up their own parodies. Yes. But he reached a new level of hilarious the other day. I had my legs stretched out on the couch. He sat down, lifting them up to place my feet across his lap and proceeding to do this little piggy on my toes. However, instead of the usual places the piggies go... My piggies apparently led way more interesting lives than I'd ever suspected. (laughs) One was a world famous race car driver. Another was the singer of a touring rock band. Another was a world class archaeologist, etc. He told a short and detailed backstory for each one. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) But what made me laugh the most was when he got to the end of the piggies on my first foot, he said, You have reached the end of your trial subscription. If you want to hear more, please purchase a premium subscription for the low price of just $3 a month. Oh, my God. (laughs) I always knew my son was funny, but who knew I had such amazing piggies? Right. Thanks, as always, for all you do. I'm sending love to all the beans. Your work is so appreciated. Whoa. Here's Ajax, the Nebelong, showing off his beautiful (gasps) emerald eyes. See why I said, whoa, look at this cat. I want one. I mean, this looks like a painting of a cat. These eyes are magnificent. I want one of these cats. Dude, that cat can hear whatever you're doing. That is amazing. And do cats have snouts too? Is that what they call them? Uh, I guess. Because look at that around the the nose and the the little mouth. That is a gorgeous feline. Absolutely gorgeous. And as you know, everyone, I'm more of a dog person. I would also take that cat and drive as fast as I could the other direction. (laughs) <laughs> Look, I like how he's putting one foot out like my mom used to make me do when he's throwing a knee pictures. He's throwing a knee. Is that what that's called? I think throwing it's called a throwing a knee. Yeah. <laughs> step and repeat, you know? Yep, exactly. When I learned what a step and repeat was called, I'm like, all right, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Throwing a knee. That's what my mom used to do. Put your foot out. It's, you know, it's be a lady. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I want one. Okay. I'm going to save the name of that breed. That's amazing. Amazing. All the good news. And I'm back and we had a podcast. AG, I missed you. It's so good to be back doing this. <laughs> will you come back tomorrow? I will. I will come back tomorrow. And the day after that and the day after and the that. the day after that and the day after that. Oh, thank you so much, my friend. It was, it's very, very good to see you. I'm glad you got a well-deserved break and that you got you. to go do your thing in front of people and make people laugh. And yeah. that's just, that's really, it feeds your soul. Yeah. You have no idea. I mean, Yes, I do. You do. You actually do. I just, the people out there, I just like having something like that taken out of your life for 18 months to two years is just, when you get it back in front of you, you're like, holy shit. It's a, it's a good feeling. And I hope there's a lot of people out there listening that have been able to recapture their joy uh, in some way during this pandemic. Cause we have to, we truly have to. And my good news, I'm going to be on the other side. I'm going to be on the receiving end of that tonight. I'm going to go see Patton Oswalt. Oh, so I'm, I'm so jealous. Very excited to to see him. One of one of the all-time great storytellers of our time. If you haven't gotten a chance to enjoy any Patton Oswalt, you should. And the same goes for Dana Goldberg comedy. And if AG gets back on stage again, and she should, the same goes for that. <laughs> I scrubbed all the comedy off the internet when no. I started podcasting. <laughs> my God. If, when I sell my TV show, I know I'm going to have to scrub my Twitter. Yeah, I know, right? Oh, my goodness. Uh, anyway, thank you all so much for listening. We will be back tomorrow and uh, thank the indictment gods and goddesses, wherever they are. And, and let's keep uh, burning a hippie patchouli for them or whatever it is they prefer. 
so that we can get a Matt Gates and a Rudy Giuliani, maybe a tone singing a DeGeneva. Yes, please. I'd really, we really need a good, big, big legal win. And Bannon was good, but I, you know, ugh, we just need something a little bit bigger. And yeah. Matt Gates would do just perfectly fit the bill. Mwah, chef's kiss for Christmas Beautiful. and the holidays. All right. Everybody, until tomorrow, please take care of yourselves, take care of the planet, take care of your mental health, and take care of each other. I'm mixing it up today. I've been Allison Gill. And I've been Dana Goldberg. And them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg and Amy Carrero. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants, and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com.